Hello, and welcome to another episode, really the second episode, of The Instant. Now, uh, technically third, because part one, or episode one, was a two-parter, so technically an episode three, but this is really episode two, in which I'm introducing the new series called Seinfraga. I'll talk about what that means here in a moment, but essentially this series is going to cover the philosophy, or the history, I suppose, surrounding the conversation of who am I? What does it mean to be a self? Who is this human individual? And what, furthermore, does it mean to be a human individual before God? So, really, this series is just kind of the product of a year-long endeavor uh, to answer those kinds of questions. Now, for the most part, uh, I've been delved into this philosophy business for the last 10 years or so now, and a lot of my interest has centered around the big questions in life, you know, does God exist? Is there a soul? Is it immortal? Is there life after death? Oh, that was very frightening. My phone just fell. You're good. Um, And those sort of things. And, you know, I was always interested in this thing known as the metaphysics of gender, getting more fundamental and more deeper into the questions, how does men and women, women, how does men and women differ from one another? What are the differences between the sexes, if there are any, and so on and so forth. And um, I haven't really gone into more psychological depth Um, than really looking at those sort of philosophical questions. So over the last year, I've kind of found this interesting love or merging of psychology with that of philosophy. And so I'm reading, of course, a lot of books now that talk about how, hey, given that the 20th century has seen this significant advent of psychoanalysis, depth psychology, stuff like that, we really can't go back. And so what Christianity needs today is a good sense of psychology. Um, I'm getting that a lot, of course, from Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, but as well as other um, prominent thinkers in this field. Uh, for those of you that are more delved into the Thomistic kind of route, there's uh, Robert Edward Brennan, um, who is a psychologist, a priest. He died in 1975. He wrote a lot of wonderful, bo- wonderful books from a Thomist perspective uh, as to a history of psychology. So the, I'm coming at this from a pretty unique perspective. My background training is in philosophy, but again, I'm pretty excited to delve into the conversation of the psychologist. But just in doing so by trying to map out some things, right? Um, Because this introduction, this first episode I'm going to be doing on the nature of the self is just starting out with some preliminary understandings, some basic metaphysical points um, that I think need to be clarified in order for us to really begin. Um, And I'm also going to talk about some practical things because, of course, we can't lose our head in the clouds every so often. We have to kind of make our way down into earth, make things practical, and not just merely stay contemplative. But for the most part... Let's let's start. Let's start. <laughs> Take a sip of my coffee. In this lecture, I am going to phrase the entirety of this series just basically in the form of a question. That's kind of where I'm getting this name of the series from, Seinfraga. Well, because, of course, as good philosophers, just like the good heroes that we read in our stories, we have to encounter some problem or obstacle in order to give rise to our need for an adventure in life. The secret of life, however, as Blazy Pascal observed some 500 years ago, is that we have already embarked on this adventure and that all of us are bound for an eternal port. But now, the sort of problems that we face in life, the sort of questions that we face, just like the problem or the question of the self that arises, there must be some integral treatment of the problem's history. Because insofar as troubles and sufferings don't emerge spontaneously out of a sort of arbitrary vacuum of experience, There is a sense in which we are engaging a real threat of antithesis, of real opposition, 
being and non-being, good and evil, life and death, life and destruction, really, if I can say it like that. Now, this threat, of course, is not one which has emerged just recently in the modern period, right? Over the last 200, 150, 50 years of the last two weeks, but it's one which has extended over the whole of human history, ancient, medieval, and modern. Now, as Martin Heidegger uh, once observed, a German philosopher that we'll cover in a future episode, Seinfrage, or literally being question, or the question of being, is necessarily bound up with the Geschichte des Sein, or the history of being. So, of course, now you see where I'm getting the name of this kind of stuff. But all this means is that when we're asking questions about the nature of the self, really, right? What is what is the self? Who am I? What is this thing, this particular ego, this body, Stephen, that inhabits all this? What's going on there? Who is that? Well, I think when we ask those kinds of questions, we have to integrate this, couple it with other prior, more fundamental inquiries about metaphysics, particularly a science of being. So we're not concerned with physics, a sort of study of nature, if you will, but we are concerned with a study of being itself, as well as, of course, the history of being. These two are necessarily wound up with one another, because when I'm asking the question, who am I, I have to integrate that question's history, right? I have to involve my past, present, and to some extent my future as well. Now that's talking about spirituality. We're going to put a hold on that, but right now we're just foreshadowing. But also, um, in order to understand that question, who am I? We have to integrate, of course, the totality of ourselves, the history of our past, and so on. But our reason for doing that is to provide the sort of contrast of our own particular individual development such my, such as Stephen, right, from that of the rest of the collective participation of self-consciousness, which is throughout the rest of human history. So it's kind of finding this contrast, or if you will, even my place in the historical conversation of who am I? Because it's not a question that I myself have only asked before. But and moving on, um, just from those sort of considerations, this series is going to include a lot of exciting history, or what, does I think, what I think is exciting anyway, a lot of exciting psychology, philosophy, theology, as well as examining certain ideas in closer detail, such as personality types, or what has come to be known as psychological typology. We're going to look more in more detail at archetypes, the unconscious. We're going to look at thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, Thomas Aquinas, Pascal, Carl Jung, Sigmund Freud, many others. So, before we do that, I just, I just, of course, want to do something by way of an introduction. I want to talk about some practical points and then just kind of talk about some speculative kind of things. So th there is going to be some metaphysics in this episode because I know that's what the people want. God bless you again for your patience for sitting through this kind of stuff. But after all, you got time. You got interest. Here we are. Let's do it. The present listener, that's you, of course, at this moment, is only getting a sense of what temperature the water is going to be after sticking your intellectual toes into the pool of understanding, to make this into a weird analogy. So it's clear, then, before this episode reaches its conclusion, that some will actually quiver in cold hesitation. They'll get bored, turn away, what have you. And while certainly there are others who I think have no concern for gauging temperatures, and they have a kind of temperament that shows a philosophy of the cannonball at work. But of course, your present author is not concerned with being a siren or a seducer, if you will, of religious thought. So for those of you that remember your classical mythology, a siren was 
though were those creatures who Odysseus uh, covered his ears with wax um, in order to avoid the seduction of their song, which would lure men to their deaths. So, you know, I'm reminded of a certain quote by John Locke on that point. We must not loose our thoughts into the vast ocean of being. So then, in that regard, an intellectual siren is one who plays the sweet, alluring song of sophistication, of intellectualism, elitism, and superiority. So then, to those who have loosened their thoughts, as well as, probably, their passions to the sway of intellectualism, they have found, I think, themselves likewise swept away by the waves of curiosity, and directly themselves into the, de uh, the depths of despair. So then the kind of inquiry of which we are concerned is likewise associated with these depths. However, I think our search for the nature of the self is precisely to have despair as the starting point of our quest towards the infinitude of the human person, rather than kind of start with the other way around, which starts, on the other hand, with the infinitude of human knowledge, of human nature, and thereby ends in despair. So we're not taking an objective, merely intellectualistic kind of approach to the self, but we're integrating an extensive, holistic view of the human person. So that is to say, we're concerned with the spiritual as well, as well as the metaphysical, which I would differentiate. So for those of you that have this idea of metaphysics, that necessarily translates to weird things like crystals, aliens, uh, and sage, um, no. <laughs> So, in order to steer clear of these problems, it's necessary, I think, that we proceed first with some clarifications. The first thing that I figure that's worth clarifying is the sort of psychological temperament involved with someone who is listening to this podcast episode, right? Because I really think you have to have a certain kind of temperament or attitude in order to draw, I think, significant insight from what I'm going to talk about today. Um, so bear with me as, with a moment as I explain this. There's one philosopher... Um, named Arthur Lovejoy, who once was a professor of philosophy at John Hopkins University, and he gave a series of lectures uh, in the early 1930s at Harvard University, which later came to be published as a wonderful little book called The Great Chain of Being. Now, if you like philosophy, um, wait to get this book. If you're really into philosophy and you know your stuff, get this book, read it. It is very difficult to read. Um, there is a lot of conceptual and historical jargon, um, that I think takes some time to wrap your head around, but it's a very significant book. Now, in that book, here's what I'm getting at, sorry. There's a certain phrase that I thought was wonderful as a kind of description of the sort of attitude that I'm talking about. And the phrase that Lovejoy uses is metaphysical pathos. I have to sneeze, hang on. Okay, we're good. Uh, to put it in Lovejoy's words, metaphysical pathos is exemplified in any description of the nature of things any characterization of the world to which one belongs in terms which, like the words of a poem, awaken through their associations and through a sort of sympathy which they engender, a congenial mood or tone of feeling on the part of the philosopher and his readers. So in other words, Lovejoy makes a wonderful observation that there's a certain kind of sympathetic or I guess you could say even aesthetic or beautiful experience within one's approaching a theoretical or highly intellectual subject. So, now, mind you, this is just one kind of way of describing this metaphysical pathos, this, this feeling towards the nature of being, if you will. But this aesthetic experience that I'm talking about, or tone of feeling, as Lovejoy says, 
could even really be felt among the laity or the non-academics who aren't so involved with the intellectual life, who themselves will read a difficult, let's say even voluminous work, a big tome of pages, and they can nonetheless still accrue some kind of emotional reverberation that is independent of any definite image that might emerge from their reading of the text. So I think to really put it in another way, there's a certain Latin phrase that Lovejoy uses, and I think it sums this up very nicely. Omne ignotum pro magnifico, or that is roughly translated, everything not known is in place of a magnificent thing. I think even Sherlock Holmes used that that phrase in uh, one of Arthur Conan Doyle's novels. But the idea is that metaphysical pathos suggests that the present listener exhibits something of the similar wonder which Plato said drove the need to pursue knowledge in the first place. So like the detective, the philosopher is driven by an inward passion or desire to know. So, of course, the detective, for the sake of solving a crime, um, or to use one theological phrase, the detective is involved in putting the world back to rights. And the philosopher himself is involved in knowing for the sake of knowing itself. Or at least this is what the pagan philosopher might be involved with. Um, this is differentiated from the Christian philosopher. But nonetheless, that knowing, this sake of knowing itself, is a delight which is sort of constituent of the good life. Or simply what Aristotle called the happy life. This is why the first sentence of Aristotle's metaphysics begins with a succinct observation about man's being in the world. Which says... All men naturally have an impulse to get knowledge. Now, from here we have to talk about limitations and warnings, right? Um, because, of course, human beings in their finite, limited constitution, uh, or constitution, I should say, um, is bound by ignorance. And I'm, I want to quote some lines from the British poet Alexander Pope um, in warring against this idea of intellectual promiscuity, now that's my phrase, not his. In other words, we're kind of putting our mind in every single place that we can uh, possibly imagine. In other words, if it's knowledge for free, it's knowledge for me. Um, but otherwise, Pope says, He who through vast immensity can pierce, see worlds on worlds compose one universe, observe how system into system runs, what other planets circle other suns. What varied being people's every star may tell why heaven has made us as we are. But of this frame, the bearing and the ties, the strong connections, nice dependencies, gradations just, has thy pervading soul looked through, or can a part contain the whole? So then, I think the idea behind Alexander Pope, and even John Locke's warning against the vanity of reason, or really this overt confidence in rationalism, I guess I should say, is that man must habitually become mindful of the limitations of his mental powers. John Locke even has a wonderful phrase where he goes on to say that men may find matter sufficient to busy their heads and employ their minds with variety, delight, and satisfaction, if they will not boldly quarrel with their own con constitution and throw away the blessings their hands are filled with because they are not big enough to grasp everything. Know then thyself, says Alexander Pope. Presume not God to scan. The proper study of mankind is man. The fundamental idea is to regard knowledge as something that is in search of a truth that is true for you. Now, of course, this isn't to resort to a kind of subjectivism, 
whereby all things pass through the authority of your own mind, but rather that you and being itself are in dialogue with one another. To put it, I guess, another way, being can only know or be known likewise by being. Um, you know, as another poet put it, he says that we must transluce our gaze towards being. Because, I guess I think of it this way, in this life we are not granted a transparent knowledge of God. So, in sticking with this, this analogy of light, Paul succinctly says in his church, uh, in his letter to the church at Corinth, that now we only see through a looking glass darkly, talking about our knowledge of God. So, that is to say that at present, in this life, our gaze towards God is not transparent. He does not shine through us as a beam of light through a clear panel of glass. However, thankfully, our gaze towards God is not opaque either, right? Where no light is able to shine through. Now, a translucent gaze, on the other hand, is one whereby the light is able to shine through and is yet scattered upon reflection, much like what you see from frosted or pearl glass or even from a kaleidoscope. So then a, a translucent kind of gaze upon God or where God is kind of shining through the individual, it's one, I think anyway, indicative form of seeing through the lens of faith, one whereby really the light of grace shines through the individual or shines through creation and it is observed by the individual, I guess I might say. And it's how the individual is able to see that God initially made everything as good. However, the very way in which that is able to be seen is likewise through God's grace alone. Now, of course, certainly God has made manifest his power in creation, as Paul writes, uh, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. However, the knowledge that is afforded to us by this experience of creation is one which is only partial. It is not through an experience of the ocean shores or the flowing trees that one is able to say, Jesus is Lord. Rather, of course, it's by the virtue of the Holy Spirit that one is able to say, Jesus is Lord. So, really, in this series, we're going to be looking at what it means to go back and forth between the eyes of faith and the light that's afforded to us by reason and examine how that relevance of those two conversations are integrative into understanding um, what it means for the individual human self to say, I am. And so that's kind of what I'm, or how I'm approaching this series, is kind of with that mindset. The way I want to approach this mindset in, in framing this question for this episode is how does man differ from other created things? That is to say, what is the difference of man and what difference does it make? Do men differ from plants, animals, and machines only in degree? Or does man differ fundamentally in kind from the rest of created things? Is man guided by reason, emotions, or passions, or somehow all of them? Does man have a spirit? What does it mean to be a spirit? What is mind? What is soul? And what is spirit? And how are all these distinct from one another? So now those are all sort of interesting questions by which we could begin our inquiry, right? Just as some philosophers begin with some presupposition, whether it be of the nature of consciousness, the nature of the self, or the nature of innate ideas, the philosophy will, of course, always tend to end in those presuppositions. So insofar as we're asking questions like that, 
Let's start with a fundamental question, asking, what is man? How does man differ from the rest of things? What does man know and how does he know it? So, of course, just fundamentally to reiterate our question, what is man? So let's outline some possibilities. Now, there's a particular book by an American philosopher, um, Mortimer Adler, who I think best surveys the views that we're going to encounter in this series. Um, because, of course, you know, you could say, you know, Stephen, whoa, there are so many philosophers, there are so many psychologists, there are so many theologians, so many figures in history who talk about what it means to exist, the nature of the self, and all that kind of stuff. How are you going to cover that really in a series with a finite amount of episodes? Well, uh, first, I think we have to, of course, um, work more broadly, work with the general. And this is why I'm mentioning now that we have to start with some clarifying metaphysics as to the nature of being or man's being and how he differs from the rest of created things. So this is what this episode is about, laying that groundwork. And we're going to do so by looking at Mortimer Adler and a book he wrote in 1966 called The Difference of Man and the Difference It Makes. Now, Mortimer Adler, for those of you that don't know, he is one of my favorite philosophers. He is an amazing American academic. He lived basically through the entirety of the 20th century. The dude died at like 98 or 99 years old, born in 1901, died in or 1901, died in 2000, I want to say. So he actually converted to Christianity in his late 90s. Um, and so throughout the 50s, 60s, and 70s, he was a very well-known public intellectual, but very sympathetically Thomist. Uh, or inclined to Catholic thought, um, just without being overtly uh, religious. You know, he did, he was a self-described uh, pagan in one book that he wrote in the '70s called "How to Think About God," which is a brilliant book. Now, anyway, um, where am I at my notes? Yes, we're going to talk about an outline of that. Yes, we're going to do that. Sorry, guys, I lost my place. You'll get over it. Oh, yeah, one thing I think I should mention um, is that this concept of the self, I, I would sharply distinguish this concept of the self from an inquiry about the nature of man because the concept of an individuated self, the concept of the ego or what have you, is a relatively new or particularly modern development amidst the general history of ideas. Now, there are some histories which could look to the advent of of the conscious philosophy, if you will, of Rene Descartes, um, which shows the sort of snowball effects of philosophizing about a thinking subject, an ego, an I, right, as distinct from a world of non-thinking objects, because Descartes tended to have this preoccupation with dividing the world into thinking and non-thinking things. So in other words, philosophically speaking, I think it's, wor it's worth admitting that this inquiry as to the meaning of the self is strange because of my mention of pre-modern thinkers like Aristotle, Plato, Aquinas, who predate Descartes and all these other psychologists that develop in the modern period, um, particularly in the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, um, and how these thinkers are distinct from a explicit conversation of an individuated consciousness. Um, so like I said, it's going to be strange for me to talk about all those guys, even though the self is a relatively new thing. So mind you, I'm talking something here about something much more fundamental and deeper as to the nature of man. Um, and so I want to just clarify that I'm not going to be looking at any particular conception of the self. 
um, from any one philosopher, theologian, or psychologist. So what that means, as we proceed forward, is that we have to address first a science of being, a sort of metaphysical view of the human person, in order for us to really think about this question of the self. So, we can start our inquiry by asking this same question that we asked before. How does man, the being of man, the nature of man, differ, if at all, from everything else on earth, from the rest of created being? Now, to skip ahead, um, there are really three answers we could give to that question. The first is that man differs in degree only from the rest of created being. The second answer is that man differs superficially in kind from the rest of created being. Man differs, this is the third answer, man differs fundamentally in kind from the rest of created being. So then, now really, let's take a step back. Now that we can see those answers, how is it that we come to a kind of criteria? What kind of evidence, arguments, or justifications would we provide in answering the question, what is man and his essential differences from the rest of everything, or from the rest of the created order? Well, for one thing, the evidence would have to in some way be comparative. It would have to involve public as well as observable differences between human and animal, uh, animal behavior, or human and machine behavior. So we can distinguish this kind of evidence, what we can call comparable evidence, from that of what Mortimer Adler calls reflexive evidence, or basically non-comparative evidence. This kind of evidence treats man's study of himself as subject rather than as object. So there's this idea that man is both subject and object. He is a center of consciousness as well as an object of conscious thought. However, a comparative study of man's being would look purely to the external, objective, or overt behavior of a human individual, as distinguished from animal or machine behavior. In contrast, while a reflexive study of man's being would be something akin to what the existentialists, the phenomenologists, and to some degree the Kantians are talking about, regarding what can be universally discovered about man's being through self-consciousness or a close inspection of the interior life. Now, in our study of the human person, we are precisely going to have an interest more in the first kind of evidence, that of comparative or externalized evidence. We really are concerned with both, because insofar as our interest in that answer to that question, what is the difference of man, uh, it has to, insofar as we have an interest in that question, it has to be extensive. So we have to incorporate both the comparative as well as the reflexive. But insofar as we're providing an objective analysis and talking about the essential differences, we must look primarily or with priority to the objective or comparable evidence. That is to say, the public evidence. Now, regarding that question, right, what is man and how does he differ from other things, we might think that a purely objective or comparative study of man's being might necessarily lead us right into the scientific domain exclusively, right? Well, that's not quite the case, since our interest in comparative evidence comes from both science and philosophy. So, let's just see how that's at play when we look at those three answers. First, to support the answer that man differs only in degree from the rest of created things, the evidence must show that every type of human performance is found in other living things and in machines as well, and that these performances are present in either a higher or lesser degree within the being of man. Now, let's provide some sort of methodical clarifications about that first point. Since the evidence never consists in the bare data of observation, but the data interpreted, the 
the interpretation given must be checked against conflicting evidence from common experience, as well as the, the interpretation put upon it by common sense opinion. And not only this, but the methods of investigation employed in obtaining the data, the assumptions underlying such methods, and the soundness of the theoretical constructs used by the investigative scientist must themselves be subject to critical examination. Now, it is that work precisely, that um, examination of assumptions, that looking to of the theoretical framework, that the philosopher finds his relevance, which is to say that we are concerned with not only science, but with philosophy as well. So now, and moving on, to support the answer that man differs superficially in kind from the rest of created beings, the evidence must show that man's objectively observable behavior includes certain performances not found at all in other living things or in machines. This must be combined with evidence that clearly supports the explanation of these distinctively human performances. Now, this is going to be a complex phrase, but I'm going to explain this later. By reference to a critical threshold and an underlying continuum of degrees of either psychological or neurological complexity. Now, I'm going to talk about this here in a moment, but there's essentially going to be a view uh, espoused by some philosophers from some modern biologists who suggest that there is some kind of principle, some kind of underlying continuum of regularity or psychological or neurological complexity, which accounts for the differentiation of man's being from the rest of created being. And we could think here of thinkers like Karl Marx, who suggests that um, that human beings differ superficially in kind from the rest of the created order because they're really subject to the same kind of materialistic processes uh, which history unfolds under. So Karl Marx might say that man differs superficially in kind. Probably Immanuel Kant might say the same thing um, by his positing of synthetic judgment uh, to know a priori truths. Um, but again, I'll talk about that later. The final answer, that man differs radically in kind. The evidence here must show that man performs certain acts not performed at all by other living things or by machines, combined with arguments that justify the positing of some power or factor in man's constitution that is not present in other things, animate or inanimate. According to Adler, of course, to advance such arguments of the positing of some power or what have you is clearly the work of a philosopher. So, you can see how when we're involved in this inquiry, we're necessarily doing away with a kind of positivism as well as logical positivism. Positivism we could think of uh, as existing under the guise of thinkers like uh, Schleiermacher as well as Kant, who don't say that we can only know truths through science, but that these thinkers kind of shut the door on metaphysics. And you have the logical positivists who go even worse and shut truths on anything outside of analytical or scientific judgments uh, as meaningless, that we can do away with these conceptions of reality and come to a more realist perspective, which integrates science as well as philosophy. Um, the nature of created being as well as that with the fundamental things and principles that we can know about being, so physics as well as metaphysics. Now, Let's talk about two historical periods by which we could distinguish these answers from one another. According to Adler, we can differentiate between two historical periods throughout the history of man. 
The first period refers to pretty much the beginning of Western thought until about the middle or end of the 19th century. During this first period, the question of man's differences were primarily philosophical and addressed as such by philosophers and theologians that we know so well throughout history. Plato, Aristotle, Augustine, Plotinus, Boethius, and so on. But then, the second period refers to the middle or end of the 19th century, to the present, by which we now see the advent or at least the significant development of the natural sciences to understand man's ontological differences. Throughout the 20th century, we have seen outstanding insights from the biological as well as behavioral sciences regarding this question, but it should be remembered that this transition into the 20th century doesn't necessarily entail that the question thence became an entirely scientific one. Um, some scientists certainly think it did, and still do, uh, it's not the case, but it's just simply that the scientific insights and technological developments which the first period lacked was now supplanted by the assistance of critically relevant empirical evidence. Now, the second period itself is kind of complex and can be divided into other categories. I'll just cover them briefly because I don't want to spend too much time on this, but the first period refers to the initial entrance of the theory of biological evolution as well as paleoanthropology. The second category refers to the development of the behavioral sciences, um, primarily aided by the understandings offered by observations uh, of the comparative studies of animal and human behavior, coupled, of course, with experiments from neurology. And then finally, the third category comes to refer to the development of computer technology and its significance for imitating or simulating human performances. Coupled again, of course, with mathematical and neurological theories about these mechanical performances. Now, these differentiations are taking place within a relatively short period, roughly about a 150-year period. You can see, then, how there's a lot of historical and conceptual details to cover when you examine the sort of views espoused by philosophers in the first historical period, which there's already a lot going on there, and especially how these details deepen once you consider the second historical period and the various epics within that, which again address the question of man's being in the world. So again, this is a very difficult conversation, one in which you have to sift through a lot of philosophical and scientific groundwork. However, just to bring ourselves, again, I'm skipping through so much and going through so much argumentation that I need to provide, but I've done this in other episodes, and again, I'm just skimming because I want to kind of get to it. <laughs> But we need to come to a point of decision, and the decision that, Ad, uh, that Mortimer Adler comes with in answering all these questions is saying that we should hold the view that man differs fundamentally in kind from the rest of created being, primarily for the reason that man alone is capable of propositional or syntactical speech. In other words, man differs from other created beings fundamentally in kind, and not just superficially or in degree only, because man alone is capable of naming things and of forming sentences. Now, you might raise an objection and say, wait a moment, this claim seems evidently false. Assuredly, there are other created beings, machines, or animals, who can form sentences, that they too can participate in the use of symbols and sign language, for example. Now, a response uh, to that would be that the problem with certain behavioral scientists, uh, psychologists, comparative psychologists, biologists, neuroscientists, is that they use an equivocation of the word concept or symbol when they use this word as a theoretical construct 
needed to explain the observed behavior of animals and men. Now, when we instead make the distinction between a concept and a perceptual abstraction, we can see that this apparently similar behavior in man and animals is really explained without reference to some kind of concept formation on part of the non-linguistic animals. So, this is a rather complicated way of saying that the sort of nonverbal factors which are a part of or operative within the behavior of some non-linguistic animal, dolphin, chimpanzee, bonobo, whatever, these are just perceptual residues or memories of certain abstractions which are entirely dependent upon perceptual instincts themselves. So stated in Adler's language, non-linguistic animals are only capable of perceptual abstractions, not concept formation. In other words, we can say that this particular individual wolf, let's call him Scruffy, he can have an experience of something, say, of a deer out in the distance, but the wolf cannot appropriate this object as one which he himself is relating. He can individuate the particular experience of the deer, but he cannot have an experience of the deer as an individual. And so I think then the nail in the coffin is really to suggest that if there is any theoretical justification whatsoever for dividing concepts into verbal and nonverbal, this must be derived exclusively from human behavior. Uh, I don't see how this could be any other way. So given that that metaphysical constitution is the case, there isn't any kind of scientific theory or future discovery that could come along and disprove this kind of conception of man because it exists at a fundamental ontological level. And this is because man has a constitution, a form of constitution, by way of his ability to name things, form sentences, uh, participate in propositional or syntactical speech. That is to say, he can organize meaning, and this very feature of human experience is what differentiates him fundamentally in kind from the rest of created things. And so then, now just to kind of summarize all that's been said and to kind of provide some foreshadowing of what's coming in the future, essentially what I'm trying to do here is, again, lay the metaphysical groundwork for understanding man's constitution and see how it is exactly he fits within a sort of gradation of being or within a grade of being by which he participates in a certain perfectibility. And his perfectibility is known by the fact that he is a material as well as spiritual being, that he doesn't merely differ from the rest of material created being just in degree, but that he differs fundamentally in kind by virtue of his ability to participate in spiritual experience. He can infinitely transcend himself, to kind of put it in a statement. I mentioned earlier that man can become um, not only a center of consciousness, but also an object of conscious thought, which suggests that there is something infinitely self-transcendent about the nature of man. He can infinitely transcend himself. And so I don't want to say too much, but I want to kind of clarify again this sort of vision of the human person as standing within a certain gradation of being. And that this hierarchy is very particular when we consider the nature of the self and what it means to be a self before God as distinguished from the rest of created things because we're not merely um, an animal on a progressive biological timeline, nor are we sort of like devils uh, or little angels caught up in animalistic bodies. Um, we have to clarify a certain sort of perfectibility, a certain place that we hold in the entire hierarchy of being, where God is at the top 
And really, vegetative or chemical life exists sort of at the bottom. And as you kind of rise in certain kinds of activities and certain kinds of intelligences, you get at the being of man. And so in future episodes, I'm going to talk more about angels, how this is contrasted from man's nature, talking a little bit more about spiritual created being as differentiated from uh, uncreated spiritual being, of course, God, um, and all those kinds of distinctions. But this is just to, again, clear the metaphysical fog around man's constitution and talk about um, just some ontological preliminaries. Now, in future episodes, there's going to be more clarifications. This, again, was just a brushing through, a sort of uh, conceptual introduction to philosophical anthropology or just a sort of metaphysics of man's being. So as I always say at the end of these episodes, God bless you. May God keep you. Please be on the lookout for future episodes I have coming on this series. And as well as for those of you that are interested, I have another podcast that I haven't worked on in some time, but the episodes are still great. I think anyway, um, go check it out. It's called unadulterated theology. It's a podcast that looks at the conversation of pornography in some more philosophical as well as theological detail. In that podcast, I talk a lot about existentialism. I talk about the philosophy of art, the nature of beauty, and cool things like that in relation to uh, feminism, sex, pornography, the adult entertainment industry, and other things like that. So um, check those out. God bless you. Thank you all for your patience in <laughs> having uh, me develop this blog um, or your patience towards me having uh, to develop this blog because I, I don't know a lot of what I'm doing and creating this website and stuff like that. So hopefully it's all up and running at a good time and it looks great when it's all finished. I'm sure it will. Maybe not. I don't know. I'm confident though. God's, God's been providing. So God is, uh, God is good for sure. But God bless you and thank you so much. See you again next time. Bye-bye.